Let's, let's uh, get started tonight. I'm going to turn on the mic so we can get a little recording here. Um, you'll remember, if we go back in our minds to just last week, uh, before I forget, by the way, because I know I'm going to forget, no meeting next week. So I think that probably stands, everybody already knows that, but no meeting next week. Um, so if you go back in your minds to last week, we're in, uh, Saul has become king, and if you're what? It's a little bit loud, isn't it? I feel like it's a little reverb. Uh, it's a one. It's channel one. If you'll just turn it down just a hair. Um, yeah, I do too. I, it's all for the recording. I think you could hear me without the mic, but it's all for for it to be recorded. Um, so Saul has been made king over Israel, and he has encountered his first test. Now, when we think about the kingdom of of Israel, you have to take away from your mind the idea of golden thrones and guards and, you know, big palaces and things like that. When we see Saul as king during this first little time, he's standing behind two oxen and he's plowing his own field. So this is a, just a regular Joe, really. And the nation of Israel is kind of excited in anticipation for Saul being king because the nation as a whole is divided. Every tribe is basically doing what is right in its own eyes. We saw that even as early or as late as the end of the book of Judges. Everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. And even to the point where the tribe of Benjamin abuses this lady and um, she dies as a result. And it, what happens as a result of all of that is 11 tribes come against one of their own tribes and basically decimate it till there's only 600 people left in the tribe of Benjamin. And so you have at the end of the book of Judges just the nation of Israel, if you can even call it that, in mass chaos. And so all that is being sought out in having a king, or what's really hoped for with this person of a king, is that he will bring everyone together and give them a sense of common purpose and nationality. Bring them together once again as sort of brothers, if you will, and that they wouldn't be so divided. There's fractures all across the board. Well, as soon as Saul is named king, what happens but that he has his first adversary? And it comes in the person of Nechash, who is king of the Ammonites. He comes against Jabesh-Gilead, and he's seeking to attack them. And he picks Jabesh-Gilead because it's on the other side of the river from Saul and the armies that they're going to have to cross the Jordan River to get to them. And also, they have some familial connection to Saul. All his ancestors come from Jabesh-Gilead. Back at the end of the book of Judges, when the tribe of Benjamin is decimated to a few hundred men, what's left for them to rebuild the tribe of Benjamin are women from Jabesh-Gilead. So Gibeah, where Saul is from, where he lives, and the town that he is currently dwelling in, which is his capital in Gibeah, which is in the Promised Land, is where his father is from. He's currently living there. But his mother's family is all from Jabesh-Gilead. So he has connections both to Gibeah and Jabesh-Gilead. And he is having to go and lead an army to Jabesh-Gilead. When Saul hears about what's happened in Jabesh-Gilead and that Nahash has attacked uh, Jabesh-Gilead, he takes the oxen that he's plowing behind and he chops them up. And he sends them through the land of Israel as a sign to all the, nation, all the tribes come together, and we're going to fight uh, uh, Nahash. Now, the other significance of the king of the Ammonites, Nahash, is that that name means serpent. 
which is exactly the same name we find in Genesis chapter 3 that's coming into the garden that's seeking to deceive Adam and Eve. And so what do we have except that Saul, who is king over Israel, is appointed as uh, the, the, basically the point man for God's kingdom, to spread his kingdom throughout the, the land and drive out the enemies before them, uh, is his first encounter, his first uh, challenge comes from the serpent. And what is he going to do? Is he going to defeat the serpent or is it going to defeat him? Well, the nations come together and they join forces at uh, Jabesh Gilead and they defeat Nahash. And so they come back together at Gilgal and they're having a big party. Everybody's really happy about it that the, our king, whom we have appointed, has united us in battle and has squashed the serpent. This is a good sign for the kingdom of God as it goes forth under Saul's reign. At least it starts that way. So they're all together at Gilgal, and they come together and they're, they're having a big party. And Samuel enters into the scene in chapter 13, and he has this sort of, while I have you all here moment <laughs> with the rest of the nation. Because they still need to set the record straight. It didn't get off to a good start with the people and Saul and all of that. You'll remember that Saul was hiding behind the baggage and there was some strangeness with the selection. And of course, the nation of Israel overstepped their bounds by coming to Samuel and saying, we reject who you have appointed to follow after you, your sons, because they're wicked. And we instead want to appoint a king over us. And so they demand that we have a king. And so Samuel uh, obviously beseeches the Lord, and the Lord says, you know, they're rejecting me. Do it. They're sinning. So there's that whole thing. This did not get off to a good start. In spite of the victory that he's just had over the serpent, they've come back together, and Samuel's just going to call out the elephant in the room. Okay? Let's just let's, let's get things off to a good start. Let's, let me make sure that we're all on the same page about what, where we should be going forward, okay? Just so we're sure, all right? So chapter uh, 13 is, or chapter, uh, I should say, is it 12? Yeah, it's 12, I'm sorry. Chapter 12 is really that. Samuel setting the record straight for everybody. So the first thing that he wants to do is verify his own credibility. We see that in verses 1 to 5. It, it says, and uh, it's in your verse packet, it says, And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me, and have made a king over you. Uh, and now, behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, the Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. So Samuel is establishing his credibility first before the people. Let's just, before we get, uh, get what we're going to do, let's set the record straight. You're okay with me, right? I haven't defrauded you in any way. Everybody, we're, we're good. 
They're like, yeah, 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 there's nothing wrong with you, Samuel, of course. You, you, you've walked rightly. Good. Now, let's get down to business. <laughs> so then Samuel walks through the history of Israel from uh, the moment of the Exodus all the way up until the present hour and basically retraces how God has graciously provided every step of the way for every single person there in Israel. He has given you everything from the moment you left Egypt. He has provided all the way. And if you think about this for just a second, of course you have to recognize that that's true. They wandered through the desert what was supposed to be for just a couple of years up to the promised land. The desert. We're talking a million people walking through the desert and all of them have food. That's no small miracle. <laughs> that's, that's a tremendous... And they had water. That's a miracle for them and for their livestock. If you've if you try to lead a million people through the desert with livestock, I promise you, a lot of them are going to die. Right? They're going to die. So it's no small miracle. So he's tracing the steps. Remember just what a tremendous effort this is that God has given to you. Then, as we've seen in our study here, they walk into prime real estate. They practically walk right in to Times Square and just take up residence. It's just, it's practically given to them. Well, that doesn't just happen. I mean, that is land that has been fought over for thousands of years. Land that is really important for all the surrounding countries. And they just happen to be in a place where they're not equipped to fight for it. And Israel just walks right in. So Samuel's retracing the steps and helping them realize, you do realize that God has watched over you every step of the way and has provided for you from the Exodus until the present day. Now, there is the small problem that they demanded a king. And what did God do? Okay. He gave them a king. He gave them Saul. Now, it's going to turn out not so good for them on that front. But what we're also going to see is that God, even before the book of Samuel begins, is the book of Ruth. And who is the culminating point of the book of Ruth? How does it end? Right. David. So we're seeing that God is even providing for David's ancestors and He's crafting David already before the book of 1 Samuel even opens. And we're going to see Him providing graciously this king who is after His own heart for Israel in spite of their rebellion. But they have uh, been sinful and they have demanded a king. And so now there are the terms of the covenant. So he establishes, this is a very typical pattern, he establishes his own credibility to, give the, 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 to restore the covenant, basically. Then he reminds them of the covenant, of, of what, how God has been faithful in the past. And then he's going to now give the terms or remind them of the terms of the covenant going forward. So just, as, just so we're clear, this is how it's been in the past. This is how faithful God has been. Now, 
If God has been this faithful, here are the terms of the new covenant. And what they come to is that if, they, if, the, if Saul and the nation of Israel do what is well and they're true to the terms of the covenant, then everything's going to go fine for them. But if they don't, they should expect disfavor from Yahweh. You should expect to be punished. Um, look at, this is told back to us in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20. Will somebody read that out loud for us? Now look at what Samuel reminds them of in 1 Samuel 12, 14 and 15. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your King." So you are his people, but you're not necessarily his peeps. <laughs> you can be kicked out, all right? This is not, you know, this is not necessarily blood here, all right? You, you can be kicked out of the family. And, and here's how you do it. You disobey. You don't listen to the voice of the Lord. So 12 is really important. 14 and 15 of chapter 12 are really important for all that happens in the next chapter. But it's really important that you understand we're getting off to the right foot. You have to obey the voice of the Lord. And if you don't, you will be kicked out. You need to know that. So the terms are set as far back as Deuteronomy. Even further back before that, they understand what it means to have a king and what is expected of them. Now, sometimes what happens as you get this person in authority and you kind of feel like God is no longer the one we should be listening to. That this particular individual, this king, is the one that's going to direct us. And so everybody can kind of get on their, well, let's call it high horse. Well, especially when a person is a military, has military might, has strength and power. Well, Saul is the tallest in the kingdom. He 
probably is with his height comes strength. He's beautiful to look at, <laughs> which apparently matters for the king. Uh, he has a king's face, right? He appears to be all of the things that we want in a king. And when you're going up against the Philistines, and they have a rather tall army, to have a tall king is kind of beneficial, right? So there can be this sort of attitude where you get sort of high on the horse and you start to think to yourself, we're independent, and God's telling you, you are never that independent, ever. Okay, so all that being said, he sets the the establishment of the covenant, and then Samuel does something that can probably at first appear to us rather strange. Look at uh, what what he does is he summons thunder and rain from heaven. Uh, so he summons thunder and rain from heaven. And we see this in 1 Samuel 12, 16 to 25. I'm just going to read part of this. He says, Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord has done, it will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the, na- upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So here, here's what's going on, and it's, it may not come through necessarily because we don't plant wheat and harvest it a lot. Um, at least I don't think most of you do. Um, it's wheat harvest, uh, which means for the nation of Israel that it's the dry season. Um, that's pretty important. It's not supposed to rain there. And rain is a bad thing. Because if the wheat harvest comes to, comes to fruit, it's ready to be plucked. If a big rain and wind and storm comes along, it can destroy the crop that's ready to be plucked before it's actually plucked. So they're sitting there with the fields white for harvest, and they're ready to harvest the field. And it's supposed to be dry. It's, it would be unseasonable to get rain. Well, Samuel calls the Lord to bring rain. Not good if you've got a, a whole field of, heart, a field of wheat out there ready to be plucked. If the crops are destroyed in the storm, all the people can die. I mean, that, that's what... In fact, if you remember back in the book of Judges, you remember the scene where Samson... We didn't talk about it, but Samson takes 300 foxes and he ties their tails together, and he, which is the most epic scene in all of... But he lights a fire on the tails and they all take off running and they scurry and each fox is pulling at the other and they run through the field uh, that's ready for harvest and it burns it to the ground. So there's much more damage that's done to the Philistines than just simply uh, foxes burning their fields. It's burning their fields that are ready to be harvested. They lose all their harvest that year. And that's, that can kill everybody, essentially, that are depending on that harvest. And so Samuel brings the rains, asks God to bring the rains, and what he's showing to the people is that you are much like this crop. You are always dependent on the Lord. Just like that crop, or maybe just like you, are dependent on the season to be dry in order to do your harvest. You are also always dependent on the Lord to provide for you every step of the way. So he's just reminding them yet again, you are always to be dependent on the Lord a theme we see repeated throughout the book of Matthew. And so, what becomes very clear is that Israel, even as a monarchy, must submit to God. Hey, just because you've gotten beyond these judges doesn't mean that you can't submit to God anymore. You must. Okay, so, 
what then happens? So we transition to this section where, in chapter 13 where uh, Saul, what does he do? But he starts to get a little bit high on the horse. <laughs> so uh, the very next chapter, what, what should happen then? Is if the king takes over and he has squashed Nahash out here, he's defeated the serpent from battle, well, now what has to happen? Well, then the ambassador, the one who is the point man for the Lord's kingdom, he is supposed to exercise dominion and authority. Adam was given that responsibility, exercise dominion and authority over the earth, be fruitful and multiply. What is the king of Israel supposed to do? The exact same command, really, is to be fruitful and multiply and fill God's land with his people and drive out all the other enemies. And so uh, there is a particular enemy that is a nuisance to Israel and is for a long time, and that is the Philistines. So Saul begins his first offensive campaign. Um, where he is actually the one taking charge of the battle and, go, and marching in to squash, and this time it's the Philistines on the other side. Now, you'll remember that the Philistines had been removed by Samuel about 30 years ago. Samuel had put the kibosh on all of the, no pun intended, but on all of the, uh, on all of the Philistine threat. But the Philistines were outside, on the outside edge, on the border territory of the land of Israel, over by the Mediterranean Sea, and they were always kind of, uh, well, shooting rockets into the land, right? Always sort of throwing, throwing stones into the land. Nothing's changed. Literally nothing's changed. Um, and so they're always kind of picking on Israel, and occasionally they make their way into the land and establish a presence right there in the middle of the land like they have done at this very moment. And so um, they, he, the first assault that he takes to the Philistines is at a place called Geba, which is less than five miles away from their capital. So the Philistines have come in to the land and have set up a uh, sort of a, a station there at Geba and have a, a garrison, a little uh, out, military outpost, if you will, that's just five miles from Israel's capital. Well, this is dangerous, and you have to drive the enemy out. And so they're going to set up a kind of a perimeter around Geba and, and really uh, essentially drive out the Philistines. So Jonathan, who is the son of Saul, establishes a, 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 a small contingency of men, and they get together, and they go in and rid Geba of the Philistines. But that's a problem if you're going to go in and pick a fight. Because you might attack a small military outpost, but the war is far from over. All right? So you have to kind of put your mind in the situation of what's happening right now. Saul has not been king that long. Just a couple years. Uh, they have not that all too long ago had the fight with Nahash and defeated the first, really, their first enemy. So, as far as a fighting presence, uh, Israel's not, not that confident in their military skills at this moment. But, they go in and pick a fight with a few thousand men against a small garrison of Philistines and manage to win and drive them out. Well, what this does then is it kind of garners the Philistines who are back in their own country, who are a strong military presence, and they say, okay, you want to fight? you got to fight. So they gather their men together, and they march into the land of Israel. And at this moment, 
all the Israelites go, let's run. <laughs> and so they, they take off running. They flee. And um, they flee from, uh, from the Philistine presence as they're, as they're walking in. Some of the men flee uh, to Gilgal, which is where Saul is. Saul will flee to Gilgal. Some of them flee across the fords of the Jordan. So I know you probably don't have a map in your head for what all of that looks like, so I'm going to provide one. Gath uh, is down here and is a Philistine city. By the way, it's now Palestinian control currently. So Gath, Palestine, Gath, Philistines. You hear the similarity? Okay, just so you know, nothing's changed. All right, so Gath is a Philistine country. Um, Gibeah is the capital. Geba is where the garrison is, so you can see how close. Oh, that's not by accident, right? They're establishing right by the capital. Geba is right here. Uh, Michmash is where uh, Saul is stationed. Jonathan attacks at Geba, and uh, they basically surround uh, the Philistines, and Jonathan attacks and drives them out. So they march up from Gath into Michmash, the Israelites flee, some of them to Gilgal, so you can tell where they're running. They're headed for the, they're headed for the lowlands, not for the hills, actually. They're in the hills. They're headed for the lowlands. Uh, so they, they go to, some of them go to Gilgal. Some of them go to the fords of the Jordan, which is over here on the wall, all right? Go all the way across the Jordan. They're separating themselves a lot from the Philistines. They are uh, terrified. So Saul uh, basically summons them to battle, but here's the problem. As they're sitting there waiting, uh, remember what's, what, what was told to Saul just a few chapters ago. Samuel, when he anointed Saul as king, he said, you're going to have all these things happen. You, three things are going to happen on your way back home. And also you need to remember, when you get to Gilgal, wait on me for seven days when you get to Gilgal. Well, where is Saul now? Well, they've been to Gilgal before, but that was a different scene. He's sitting at Gilgal. And he remembers that Samuel had told him, you need to wait for me for seven days. Well, what happens but when Saul is there at Gilgal and the Philistine army is gathering around uh, or slowly encroaching upon them, Saul is looking at his men and his men are cowering in fear. And some of them are going, I'm not going to sit here and wait to just get killed. Remember, who has the high ground? It's not the Israelites. So they're sitting around going, I'm not going to wait to get killed. And slowly, Saul, remembering what Samuel has said, wait on me for seven days. He's waiting. He waits for seven days and Samuel doesn't show up at the appointed time. And he's looking around at his men and all of his men are starting to walk away. And so what does he do? he offers a sacrifice to Yahweh. Before he begins the holy war against the Philistines, he offers a sacrifice. Now, what does the sacrifice signify for the nation, for the Israelites who are there waiting to go into battle? The offering signifies God now approves of our military conquest of our holy war, and so now we're going to walk into battle and fight. But what about waiting on Samuel? Well, we're scrapping that whole plan. We're just going with this. Because to be honest with you, I'm tired of seeing all my men leave. And 
I don't know how I'm going to fight the Philistines by myself. And so we've got to do something. Because if the men leave and we can't fight, then surely we will be defeated. But he's forgotten what was said to him just one chapter ago. Listen to the voice of the Lord, or it will be the end of you. Well, no, 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 no. My men leaving and the Philistines, that's going to be the end of me. Forget about listening to the voice of the Lord. Okay, so Samuel arrives and he basically asks him, what have you done? Look at 11 to 14, chapter 13. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come to me within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Well, that was fast. (coughs) I mean, seems to be one mistake, but it was a big mistake. It seems that the Lord is, uh, we might think, unnecessarily harsh. But the point is, he says, look, he sought a man after his own heart. This is going to be described of David for a long time. But he sought a man after his own heart that would rule after his own heart. Um, This is important because, as it turns out, the only thing that's going to keep Israel alive, the only thing that's going to keep them in the covenant, is if they listen to the voice of the Lord, which Saul has not only done, has, has not only not done, he has led his whole people to not do it. All of his people know why they're waiting for seven days. And at the end of the seven days, he's basically said to them, forget that. We're calling an audible. We're doing it different. Now, what do all the people do when the voice of the Lord appears, comes to them again? And says, obey. What do they do? Well, I'll obey until it gets inconvenient. Moses is kept out of the promised land. Why? It's not just because he disobeys the voice of the Lord. It's because he did not hold the Lord as holy in front of the people. That's why. And that's essentially what Saul has done here. Is he's disobeyed the voice of the Lord and he's led the entire people to do the same. So, Saul's motivation, it seems like, at least at first blush, is genuine and appropriate. He wants to defeat the Philistines, and he knows the only way to do it is to gain the Lord's approval. However, what he failed to realize is that an animal sacrifice is not necessary or a prerequisite for entreating God. It's not required. Not only that, in the Old Testament, there is no clear case of seeking the favor of the Lord in the context where sacrifice is a necessary accompaniment. Seek the favor of the Lord? Sure. 
Is sacrifice a necessary accompaniment? There's no clear case where that is mandated. So the fact that Saul had not heeded the divine word through the prophet is a big deal because as it turns out, what we're going to learn is that obedience is always better than sacrifice. Obedience is always better than sacrifice. Um, did everyone get those words? They were going. If you don't, we'll talk about them at the end. Um, so additionally, it would seem that uh, in ancient Israel, the rules associated with holy war is that they were not to be performed by the king. The, the rituals were not to be performed by the king unless a prophet was present. And so, for all of his offenses, Samuel... It, I think I lost it. Is that right? Yep. Uh, Saul would be rejected by God. Um, so we get again this same idea that the Israelite king was rightly king so long as he upheld obedience before the king in front of the people. His job was not to win battles. His job was to obey the voice of the Lord. It was the Lord that would fight the battles. I don't know about you, but every time my faith wavers, every time I lose confidence, every time I get shaky and nervous is when I start counting. When I start looking at all of the things and I start reading the tea leaves and I start thinking about all of the things that are either going wrong or going right, or when I start looking at all, and if it's pastoring a church, when I start looking at numbers, when I start focusing on all of that, when I start looking at money, when I start looking on all those things, you can guarantee I'm always going to be nervous. That's not our job. Never has been. Never will be. If I was speaking to a room of pastors right now, so speaking to myself, I would say at some point in America, we got in our heads that our job was to build big churches. And it's not. Our job is to make disciples. That's it. That can be 30 or 3,000. The job hasn't changed. It's to make disciples. When we start counting, we're in a bad spot. It's essentially what Saul's doing. He knows what Samuel said. He waited six days at least. He knows what Samuel said. And he knows who it came from. And he knows what just happened a chapter ago. But then he started counting the people. And he thought, I'm going to need all these people if we're going to fight those Philistines. And if we're going to win, I'm going to need all of them. How am I going to do that if they're leaving? And what he forgot was that it's God that fights the battles. It's not you. Obedience is always better than sacrifice. 
And it seems like every time you get in that position, you think, well, I'll make amends. I'll donate a bunch of money somewhere. (laughs) I'll do something really holy and pious to make amends for all of that. Make myself feel a little better, which it seems like what Saul does. In disobeying, he then sacrifices to the Lord. How ironic. I feel like I need the Lord's approval. I'm going to disobey you, though. Is that okay? No, it's not. Obedience is always better than sacrifice. I think it's true even in the New Testament. It hasn't changed. What is it that the Lord actually requires of us? Obedience. People come up to Jesus and they say, Lord. And he says, why do you call me Lord and don't do what I'm telling you? Obedience. That's what we preach. That's the heartbeat of our following God is obedience. Thankfully, the advent of Jesus, he gives to us a helper so that we can obey. To convict us of sin when we don't obey. And to come before the Lord and repent for our inability to obey. Praise God.